Hey everyone, this is Patricia Clark and today I have JG Carter with us for a great conversation and uh, he doesn't want me to do this but I'm going to introduce him. He has just finished a 35 year career in mortgage, I'm going to get this wrong, mortgage banking where you were at the end CEO and president of a residential mortgage banking subsidiary, subsidiary of, a of a local bank. Okay, that's all pretty much like there you go. Chinese for me. I had to write it all down. That's okay. They're all asleep by now. Oh, that's right. <laughs> but uh, the real reason I have JG on is not for mortgage banking advice. It is because in, I would say really over the course of his whole life, alongside of his career, but even more in a more pronounced way now, I consider you a little bit of a spiritual director for people in the community. And I've experienced this some from you and I've experienced, I've seen other people benefit from that. And I'm just curious, even though it's not your job, you find yourself getting together with people one-on-one in a non-rushed way and just talking about meaning and spirituality and life. And I'm just curious why you do that and why you're drawn to that. Um, Gosh, it's an interesting question. First, I I know there are folks who've gone through tons of professional training and accreditation to get the term spiritual director. So um, I just find myself, I, I can't 100% answer your question. I end up finding myself across lunch tables, coffee tables, uh, at a happy hour with folks who often reach out to me and want to talk. Um, and much of that has uh, been related particularly to men at some mid to late stage in their careers mm-hmm. who are coming to grips with um, the decisions that they either have consciously or unconsciously made in their careers that got them to where they are. And in many ways, they're folks who have achieved things that if you'd ask them 20 years ago, what are you going to accomplish? They've got a lot of those notches in their belt. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're beginning to sense some uh, dissatisfaction with it and some sense that maybe this wasn't what I should have declared uh, as these goals. I, I, I've used the word trapped. I, I kind of, and again, nobody wakes up every day thinking I'm going to cede authority for my heart and my head to an organization or a company or a career. Nobody wakes up. Most people don't wake up and choose to do that. At least in my case, I kind of came to the realization I felt this sense of trapped of being behind walls, as I've described them, that were four feet deep, four feet thick, and 12 feet high. And I'm like, okay, this is what my life is, this career. And it wasn't a miserable existence. So Um, your office felt like... My career, my approach to work, my heart, I kind of yielded some things. I ceded authority over my own heart and spirit in a way that's hard to describe because it was so subtle and so um, progressive over time. And then, you, but you begin to feel this kind of dissatisfaction. I, I'll use the word trapped. But uh, I woke up uh, and and began to feel this and try and understand what it really was. And you know, as the psalmist said, the Lord heard my cries from on high, and He reached down and He lifted me up, and He put me in a broad place because He delighted in me. And I'm thankful to say I wish I understood it. At 30, but I didn't. And in my mid-50s, I experienced a little bit of that. 
of being lifted and put into a broad place. And when I stepped over those walls I described to start moving forward again, the walls weren't even real. They were like paper mache but they had had the authority over me as though they were real. They may have well have been real. Okay, so when you say that you look back and realize that you stepped over the walls and the walls weren't even really holding you in, are you telling me that you realized that while you were in your career? Or had you left your career and then you looked back and realized that, that you had kind of imprisoned and trapped yourself? Help me understand that a little bit, because yeah. I think most of our listeners are still in careers, yeah. and that's a that's a thing that trapped feeling. It really is, and I'll even speak to it. If you are not working in official capacity and you're raising children at home, and we sign children up for all these things, and we get involved because we think that's what we're supposed to do, and then our schedule ends up being like a prison and there's not a lot of freedom in it there's not and and we do it for the same reason that anybody creates these four walls for a sense of identity that we are enough that our children are going to be enough that we're going to matter that we're going to be successful so we kind of create these walls for ourselves and then we realize maybe those walls are not actually bringing life, they are suffocating us and cutting off our ability to, to live and flourish. And so what do you mean when you say you realize that and then you stepped over the walls? Um, you need to start the answer to that question with an assumption that our hearts and our souls were created for freedom. They were created to be free, not bound. And as we work through our lives, we all enter into circumstances that don't encourage that freedom, inhibit that freedom. Uh, some are just doing the practical things of life. Mm -hmm. And the work in my story wasn't the bad guy. It is the relationship that I had with my work that created this sense of uh, confinement. I'll use that word rather than just using the word trapped overall. Um, and the, the Lord just used a bunch of circumstances, which is too long a story to tell, to have me kind of be released from some of those walls that I had allowed to be controlling. Mm -hmm. um, I had, a, again, I've used that term, seated authority. Without ever realizing I'd done it. it again, it's only that, that, that's the hard thing about this. You, you go through life, Proverbs is loaded with admonitions that we don't understand ourselves. We don't see our world clearly. We do not have a clean lens to view our own life. It's yeah. very, very difficult. And we could talk a lot about the value of close friends who speak truth because they do see it more clearly than we do. Um, yeah. And I think as I worked my way through all that, I, I began to have, I, I would say the first inkling I had was 10 years before I actually started kind of waking up to the reality of it. I just felt this, uh, I was not free in the way I knew I was supposed to be. So that confinement, that constriction, it was subtle and intangible for the most part. I just felt it, and mm -hmm. it kind of gnawed at me. Um, and I didn't do anything. I, I got rescued. 
<laughs> and and I'm deeply thankful for it because uh, it changed the trajectory of my life in a lot of ways. I, I still worked for a while after that. Um, um, but I began to realize uh, that I had done this and I had to start understanding what that meant for my life. Um, it caused me to go back and do some work with relationships that had been affected by some of the choices that I had made. Mm -hmm. um, and I just started that process mm -hmm. um, of trying to live in this freedom I now felt I had. Um, lots of stories I could tell about all of that. But this notion that, that we kind of wake up and realize this, you know, th that is a common theme when I talk to people where they, they feel some torque inside, can't describe it, but feel it. And the healthiest ones start to see how it impacts their relationships and how it impacts their behaviors. Uh, everybody creates coping mechanisms to deal with a heart that was made for freedom that's not free. Mm -hmm. And some of them are more healthier than others, I guess. Um, it, and it takes a while to understand that's what I'm doing. In hindsight, I looked back and I realized I could see several milestones in my career and in my life where I opted not for freedom, but for a safer route, what felt like a safer route, a more predictable route, the roles people expect you to play. You mentioned joining, getting your kids involved in a bunch of activities because that's what you're supposed to do to be a proactive mom, right? Mm -hmm. um, nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but they can become walls. Mm -hmm. um, and if you saw them coming, you could, and, and were fully aware of your own heart and your own kind of double-mindedness like we all have, you can kind of try and prevent them. But a lot of people can't because they don't see them and understand their lives fully. Nobody does in some regards. And, and again, it's primarily folks, uh, in my case, mostly men who are in kind of mid-career and evaluating what is it I've given my life to and how do I feel about it? And that gnawing, uh, unfulfilled freedom that we all feel is starting to bark at them mm -hmm. in either really loud ways, creating really unhealthy behavior, most often in more subtle ways that's just this low-level ambient dissatisfaction that they realize something's not right. Mm -hmm. And I, that is exactly how I felt for a long time. What do you think the role is of taking that feeling, that low-level, what did you say, low-level ambient? Ambient. Yeah, I love that. There's sort of this low-level noise that you know things are not right. What do you think about that choice to reach out and talk to someone, that step, and to have conversation and bring kind of what's the noise in your head out into the open? I mean, what, what role do you think in your experience that you've seen that plays? in these people's lives or in your own life? Um, yeah, I, I, it's not an easy thing to do because mm -hmm. in some ways things have happened in your life that you didn't determine to happen. You just realize you're almost looking at the byproduct of other choices you've made and you're not always proud of what, it, what it's there. Um, but I, I do have this overriding assumption, premise, that folks can't see their own, they can't see themselves clearly. I can't, you can't. And so there's a need for that reflection. And a, a, a trusted friend, a counselor, is a great place to go get a more clear-eyed, 
reflection. And some of that happens just in saying out loud things that are running around in your head. And being able to say it out loud to someone uh, is a freeing thing in and of itself. And if it's uh, someone with some wisdom and trustworthiness, they can reflect back to you. Well, here, here's what I really hear you saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's what I really hear you kind of aching for. Here's what I hear is really causing the problem. And for someone outside your life to look in and say, there's three things in your life that don't line up with what you just told me. Mm-hmm. Can I have the freedom to tell you those things? And if you're courageous enough to kind of, you know, grab your chair and let them tell you, often you go, wow, I did not realize that. I think if someone had said to me, described what I'm now describing about my own life to me in my 40s, I would have gone, really? Mm -hmm. They would have been insights to me. I would have been like, wow. So somewhere in this course of after you were no longer working in that career, you started having some health problems. And I know that some significant things happened to you during that time. And you it coincided with you reading a book. And I'm wondering if you can tell me about this, about this book and about these health problems and how they those circumstances helped shape you in this second phase of your life. No, I'm happy to. It was a remarkable little season, even though it was hard. Um, it was. It started uh, in, at the beginning of Lent two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone had recommended a book to me called Gentle and Lowly by a man named Dane Ortland. Um, and the, the premise of the book uh, talked about the nature of Christ Jesus' heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, I would, to sum it up, he, he would argue that um, we don't fundamentally understand his heart towards us, and we have images of anger and frustration and things when, when we are struggling or not doing well or not doing what we think we should be doing. Those are things that um, anger him or that he has to deal with. I'm using quote marks. So things like we think... God doesn't want us to have fun, or God doesn't want us to or, have too much money, or God to doesn't use your want example. Us... Uh, we have kind of ill, wrong thinking when you've had success, but still feel these achings and these unmet longings. The world's going to say to you, "What have you got to complain about?" I can point to twenty-two people who are in much worse shape than you are. Right. What in the world are you? How can you not feel at freedom and at peace in this? But I think it's true. But the premise of the book is we sense God's kind of reviled by that maybe or that God is put off by that or God wants to fix that. The premise of this book was, is, I think, that Christ, Jesus' heart is drawn to those things. It's attracted to it. So he was surrounded by people in dire straits most of his life. Most of them had some understanding that he could fix their problem. So he was a person surrounded. He never wearied. He never tried to escape it. I'm sure the physical part of him got tired sometimes, but his heart is for that because he understands what the heart, our hearts and souls were made for, this idea of freedom. It's why he came, to restore, to create a means to restore a pathway to freedom Mm. for our hearts and our souls. So we have 
we have to come to understand there's only one, according to the author, there's only one place in scriptures in the Bible where Jesus describes his own heart. And it's in uh, uh, the Gospel of Matthew where he says, I am gentle and lonely. He describes his own heart as gentle and lonely. So Dane Ortland took that phrase and started thinking about what does it really mean to understand that Jesus is aiming for these gaps we feel in our lives, whether they're physical gaps, whether they're addiction gaps, whether they're relational breakdown gaps, whether they're professional dissatisfaction gap. pick a gap. Mm-hmm. He's aimed at that. He doesn't avoid it. He seeks it. And to the degree we will let him enter into it, he has healing for it. Mm-hmm. Because the answer to many of those things is simply being in right relationship with him. So this book is floating around in my head. It was very impactful to me. I, you know, it's one of those books where you mark it up and you got dog ears all over it. Well, let me just comment on that before you get to the story about what this book did for you. But that phrase, gentle and lowly, you know, lowly is the way sometimes we feel, but we feel like there's a disconnect between how things look on the outside and how we feel on the inside. And I love that you mentioned that we think so often we've got all these things going for us. Like I have a great job. I have everything I need. I have healthy children or I just have all these things. And yet why do I feel so bad on the inside? And then what easily follows that feeling is a sense of self-disdain or shame or what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? And I think what happens, that's why I love that phrase gentle and lowly, is that often when we feel lowly, what accompanies that feeling is criticism, shame, withdrawal, hiding. And what you're talking about, you are doing now in the second half of your life, is getting together with people who are feeling that sense of lowliness and for whatever reason have decided to crack the door a little bit and let someone into that space. And yeah, that, there's in like many cases, kind of, they are simply articulating it. They are, they're not having a conscious thought, I want somebody to help me understand. They just want to get it out, and they don't have words for it. Right. right. Jesus had a different phrasing of it in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those that state you just described is poor in spirit, right? Mm. Um, and that can take a thousand forms. It, that we're all to one degree or another poor in spirit because we don't live in the freedom we were designed to live in. Um, this side of heaven, it's we live in a fallen world and it's not available to us. But understanding that and not letting the gap we feel create shame, create bad behaviors, create addiction, create relational fallout, is part of the process of becoming, heading towards wholeness and all of that. Well, I like Does that, that make you, sense? Uh, totally. I mean, I like that you brought up that phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, that is an attitude that Jesus proclaims that has transcended time. And it's this idea of happy or blessed are those that are aware of their poverty of spirit. Yes. And so one of the things, you know, I saw this episode the other day of a sitcom. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's called, it's, it's a 
kind of a drama comedy that's out right now on Apple TV. It's called Shrinking. I've heard about it. I haven't seen it. It's it's a really funny show. Harrison Ford is in it, and he's a shrink. He's a psychiatrist. And so it's this practice of psychiatrists, and they one of them starts to break the rules and do all these things you're not supposed to do. So one of his clients is having a hard time finding a girlfriend or being in a relationship. And he comes and tells his psychiatrist all these stories about why that is the case. Well, the shrink decides to break all these practice rules and go on one of the dates that this guy has. And he's sort of eavesdropping on the dinner that this guy's having with mm-hmm. a girl because mm-hmm. he's like, I don't, I don't believe what this guy's telling me in our appointments. So sure enough, the guy on the date spends all this time kind of puffing himself up, making himself look good and bragging. And the girl is so turned off, the, the woman is so turned off by this guy's bragging. And, it, and he has no idea how off-putting it is. Of course, because, you know, like you said, we're blind. We can't see ourselves. He thinks he's making himself look attractive to this woman. But the woman is so put off, she just rolls her eyes and gets up and goes to the bathroom. And while she's in the bathroom, the shrink, who's been eavesdropping, comes over and sits down. And he says, you are so full of it. The reason you can't get a girlfriend is because you're acting like a buffoon and trying to make yourself look so perfect. Be yourself. Be your vulnerable, true self with this girl and watch what happens. Because we think we are longing for this freedom, and part of the freedom is connection and relationship with others. That's how we were designed. Sure. And we think the way to do that is to be more impressive and more attractive. But where our blind spot is, is that those are actually barriers to true connection and true relationship. So then the girl comes back, the woman comes back, and it's a funny scene where he just starts the conversation with, I cried four times today. And then the scene cuts away. (laughs) But you see later that their relationship is starting to work. Right. And it's this idea, I mean, that's kind of a funny example of it, but it's this idea of that our lowly state we are so ashamed of that we cut it off from people. And we don't just cut it off from people, but we, we allow that lowly state to cut us off from God. Yes. We think that God doesn't want to have anything to do with us until we get our act together, yes. until we stop feeling ungrateful, until we stop feeling kind of depressed, even though we have everything on the outside, until we start giving more money away, until we start doing more charity, until we start being kinder to people and having less anger problems or less addiction or less shopping issues until we get all our act together. But this book is not about that. This book speaks directly to the opposite of that, where Dane, Dane Ortland talks about how in scripture, Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly, and he is drawn specifically to those places that we are trying to mask and trying to hide. You use the word mask. People who write about this often will use that analogy that people create and wear masks to kind of cope with what you just described. That's what the guy was doing at dinner, right? He's Mm -hmm. trying on one mask, and he's doubling down and getting an even funnier mask. And it's all a mask, and I think what Dane Ortland, not to put words in his mouth, but I think what he would encourage us to see is what Jesus is saying to us, you need none of those masks. I know what you look like without them already. You mm-hmm. don't need any of them. And they're not doing—I mean, it's ironic in the story that, that sitcom tells. He, he does the exact opposite thing of what he ought to do. So it's, it's interesting that he made matters worse. Like, if something's too loud, he's turning the volume up, mm-hmm. right, rather than turning it off. I think it's interesting, too, to— 
it's it's a major hurdle just to understand when you walk in a room of friends, everybody in here is wearing some masks mm-hmm. to one degree or another. Some have fewer, some have smaller masks, some don't use their mask as much as others, but everybody in this room has got masks mm-hmm. that they're using, have, are, are trying to fill this gap and create an image of themselves that's acceptable, whatever that might mean. Well, and I have a practical tip for starting to exercise this muscle or starting to enter into spaces where this is possible. And I had a guest on this podcast several episodes ago. Her name is Emily DeBose, and she has created this organization. Uh, It's an amazing organization called The Lighthouse RVA. And what happens there is that it's a, a space several times a week, twice a week, I guess, where People get together, they have a meal, and they do some kind of fun activity together. But what makes this space really fascinating is that it has such a diverse type of person in the room, if you can even say people are types. But you have everyone there is somehow related to the recovery community. So you have women who are in recovery from opioid addictions. You have women who are getting out of jail. You have women who... Um, go to like the most elite country clubs. You have women who are super successful, but everyone has this thing in common of they have been touched by addiction and it's deeply wounded, either them or someone they know. And that common ground with people who are in truly a lowly state because they're just out of prison with someone who looks the farthest thing from lowly, looks has the nicest clothes, has the most money, has the most education, but inside they feel that lowliness, that despair that comes from being in a space of addiction or close to someone who is. And that connection is like a crack and they start to, um, they just start to have a space that is more authentic. And so my practical tip is if you find that you are in circles where everything looks perfect on the outside, to find spaces where you can be in relationship with people who are more overtly open about their loneliness. So I spent a lot of time recently in a nursing home because my mom was aging. And so I was with people who were overtly lowly. They felt it. They knew it. They were upfront about it. And you had an opportunity to do this just by chance. And I want to hear about that story and about what being in, in places of lowliness, how that can actually nourish your soul. Yeah, I had not been feeling well. I won't go into all the details, but I, I could tell something was wrong with my body, but it wasn't debilitating. I was still living my life, but I couldn't feel well. Right on the heels of finishing this book, Gentle and Lowly, I was at lunch with a friend. I went home, and I just felt terrible. I started having tremendous pain in my back. Fever spiked. It was in the middle of the pandemic. I was certain I had covid Um, so I drove myself, I told my wife, I said, I'm going to get out of this house and I'm assuming that's what this is. Although pain in the back, I didn't think was part of it. Anyway, long story short, I ended up in an emergency room. And of course, emergency rooms back then were not hospitable places and they were crowded. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of room. They were started running tests. They were doing x-rays, et cetera, blood tests, all that all had, we had to wait for results because it was so overcrowded. I got sent back to the, a corner of the waiting room. And I was sitting there so frustrated. And I've never audibly heard God's voice, but whatever is right next to that, a voice came to me as clear as I could possibly describe it, even though it wasn't audible to my ear. And 
It simply said, I need you to pay attention to the people who are around you in here. And for some reason, I had ears to hear it, and I felt uh, I had been given orders. And it was comforting to me that I had a reason for being there besides dealing with whatever I was dealing with. And I was scared. I didn't know what they were going to find out. Mm -hmm. But over time, and not going into irrelevant details, they began to figure out what was wrong with me, but it took a while to get the medications dialed in. So an eight-day stay, originally it was supposed to be three, turned into eight days, which was from Ash Wednesday forward. And um, as I as they got the pain under control, I just, I had a, a really great set of interactions with the hospitalist who was assigned to my case. And as I started feeling better, um, I walk every day anyway, I said, Dr. Masood, who turned out to be a little saint in my life, I said, I have got to walk. I cannot sit in this room all the time. And he said, well, we're doing, you know, explained why, and I got it. I said, I understand it all. I said, I, I promise I won't interact with anybody. I'll wear a mask. Uh, you know, I got it. I got my little IV stand. It's your classic hospital gown, <laughs> hot IV thing. So you're you're robed with, robed, a, robed. with an IV stand and yes. a mask. Okay, I just because I'm getting an- antibiotics intravenously, sure. which is why I had to stay, because I had to do it intravenously. Sure. All to say, once I got the green light, I, this ward, I don't know how many rooms were in it. It had four wings with a nursing station central. So you could make a loop. It was a very easy loop. Mm-hmm. And I, for whatever reason, just felt called to start walking the halls. Again, this idea from the night one I was there sitting in the waiting room trying to figure it all out. I need you to pay attention to the people who are around you. And what occurred to me, greatly influenced by this book, was this is where Jesus would be. When I'm walking these halls, these are all lowly people. These are all people who are poor in spirit. Now, obviously, because most of them had serious physical issues. Mm. And I was kind of the anomaly because I, uh, I was able to walk because part of the problem was in my back, I ended up in a neurology ward, so nobody's moving. I'm the only guy on the floor trying to walk. Um, and I started doing these laps. And my before breakfast, before lunch, before dinner, and before I went to bed, I'd take 10 laps. I got to know the nurses. I watched the rhythm and the shift changes. And I would see my doctor sitting at the desk dealing with everything. And I saw these folks in lowly estate. Just, And I cannot tell you how meaningful it was for me to feel like I was kind of on Jesus's coattails as I made my path 40 laps a day around that hospital room, the, the ward. And there were, there were rooms that became empty while I was there. Mm. I, I noted the passing of people who I saw while I was there. So I just began to pray for people as I walked by them, not because I think I have anything to offer. I just feel like this is what I, I'm paying attention to the people who are around me in here, not really knowing what I just knew I got asked to do it, so I started doing it. And it spoke to my heart. I, I, in an odd way, I got, it took a long time to get out, and the, there was a couple of last-minute delays where I had to stay an extra night, and I was so frustrated. Um, you know, it's not a great place to be for a long time. And I remember walking out of the hospital the day I got out and feeling the sunshine on my face for the first time and breathing fresh air, and I started crying. It was just like, ah. So I was so happy to be home, but I'll be honest with you, the next morning, if they had let me, I would have gone and walked those halls again. 
because I felt by doing that, I was having my heart aligned with what his heart was up to. And I wanted to stay a part of that. And I try on my best days to remember that had is, that was not specific to that hospital. Uh, I think we're all called, like Jesus, to pay attention to the people around us. I don't solve people's problems. I don't really have a lot of wisdom to share. I can share some of my own failings and some of the things I've learned and some of the gifts I've received. But I... I just pay attention to the people around me as best I can. There are days I get self-absorbed and worried about my own things and get insecure, and I don't do it well. But if we're awake and alert and we decide to adopt a mindset and a heart set like his, which say, I will seek that out. I will not be put off by it. I will not draw back to, from it to protect myself. I'll enter into the meekness and lowliness of others. In doing that, we're identifying with the heart of Christ, which is meek. His heart is meek and lonely, and he is seeking those experiences out. He sees it. He knows it before it happens. He's aware of it, and he enters into it. He, he seeks it, mm. and that's not the way J.G.'s wired, naturally. Uh, I'd rather not be a present to it, not. Um, you mentioned nursing homes. or There's a lot of people who are poor in spirit for obvious reasons. Um, those are easy places to avoid if you let yourself. And not everybody's called to go do something about that, but there are opportunities for all of us every day to recognize a room full of meek, lowly people who are poor in spirit. They're everywhere. I don't know if that I makes love, sense. I like the that phrase, meek and lowly, and I also really like that that sentence that you heard in your head, pay attention to the people around you. And it does make me wonder if all of us have spaces where we are around people who on the outside are meek and lowly. Their life has made them meek and lowly. And for some reason, being in those spaces brings a blessing, not necessarily because we're doing anything to change their circumstances, but because we ourselves are meek and lowly. And there's a certain alignment that comes when we realize that we are meek and lowly and when we're with other human beings that are. It's almost like we have permission to fall in alignment with the parts of ourselves that are meek and lowly. And we have permission to be that way. I'm going to use the word freedom. Hmm. If if you have come to grips with your own state of lowliness, the, the areas of your life where you're poor in spirit, it is easier to see it in others, identify it in others, and not to judge or fix, but simply to see it, recognize it, hear it, to listen to it. You know, you said you wonder if we all don't wander into rooms with people who are in that state. I don't wonder at all about it. Every room I walk into, you go in a coffee shop and if you're awake and alert and or, or have some intuitive sense about what's happening at a table, you can almost feel it and sense it sometimes. And, and it's important, I think, it's not something I achieved, it's something I received, right? Yeah. I got an invitation and I chose to say yes to that invitation as best I knew how in the midst of my own frustration, my own sickness, my own all of that. I got an invitation that was just loaded huge dollop of grace right in the middle of it. And 
um, I chose to receive it. But it, I was invited and I was offered, right? Remember the story of the prodigal son we all learned in school, right? It's important to remember the father, if you go read that story, the wayward son's an obvious case, right? But at the end of that story, the father had to go invite the good son who had done everything right. He had to be invited to the party as well. He's like, where is he? He's outside because he was outside sulking. Because mm. in everything he'd done well, he still felt this gap. He was poor in spirit in his own way. Now, he hadn't been eating with pigs, but he was poor in spirit. And his father, just like he ran to get the wayward son as he was coming back, went out and found the good son and invited him to the party. Everybody has to be invited and to receive the invitation and then accept it. Well, in the party, you know, the story that you're referring to, the prodigal son, there's this father and there's a son that does everything wrong that leaves. And then there's, like you said, the good son that stays. And then the wayward son that did everything wrong comes back and he's welcomed by the father and he comes into this party. But the good son is outside of the party and yet he gets invited in. And I'm thinking, what is the party? The party is a place where you're loved, not because you were good, just because of who you are. It's a place, it's a, I would say, just to work our analogy over the course of our conversation, it is the spot of freedom. So whether you look good, act good, smell good, and talk good on your feet, or whether you're a knucklehead who can't get anything right and everybody thinks you're irresponsible and you're late to everything, we all, all have to be invited and to receive the invitation. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a great common denominator. Um, it's hard to embrace it, though, because we've got a whole world and culture that has constructed different criteria for what success is and for what we were made for and what is right and just. The heart that Dane Ortland describes in this book doesn't use those criteria. Doesn't. Well, and usually you think of the word freedom as what the wayward son had, you know, and that is something that we all, oh, that's a great point, you know, yeah. we all kind of maybe fantasize about this when you feel trapped in your career or in your life. Or, oh, I wish that I had this different life. And usually what that different life looks like is me getting to do whatever I want. Mm. And there is, there is kind of this fantasy that like, if I got to do whatever I want, and all these difficult people in my life weren't impeding that or my circumstances weren't impeding that or I had enough money to do what I want or I had whatever. Like imagine whatever the runway is to, to, to take your desires to the farthest place. That is what the picture of the wayward son was. And what he found was that he was stuck in a pig pen having run out of all of his money and gotten everything, his heart's desire and finding himself trapped in that. And so it's like these two different pictures of being trapped. One, getting everything you want in terms of pursuing life's pleasure. The other was the good son who did everything right, was quote unquote successful, and he found himself trapped in that as well. And who probably thought, I've earned the party. I've done what I was supposed to do. I, I clicked all the boxes. Um, so he thought, I've earned it. And in reality, he couldn't receive it, even though the party started happening, until his father sought him out. It's really important to look at that story. He, the father sought him out. Because the party is living the freedom 
in the freedom that our hearts and our souls were designed for. That, that's what we're invited to. Um, I've come to believe that God is, in his own hard-to-understand way sometimes, redeeming everyone and everything. Everyone and everything. The ones we think should be there and the ones we think don't think should be there. Mm-hmm. Us, if we think we shouldn't be there, he's redeeming it all. And we are called to participate, to contribute, and to receive his act of redemption. Eugene Peterson, who's a famous Christian writer, said, God is relentless in his pursuit of you. He uses that word, and I've started using it a lot because he's relentless. Whether we receive it, whether we notice it, whether we accept it, whether we acknowledge it in any way or ignore it completely, it does not change. I was having coffee with a, a buddy who was in a really hard spot and had made some really bad choices as a result of the hard spot he found himself in. And I had nothing for him except to say this. You understand that nothing you just described to me in our hour coffee changes one iota your Heavenly Father's attitude towards you. Mm. None of it. I said, I I think you probably don't really realize that. So you feel regret, you feel shame, you are embarrassed. He had some high-profile bad mistakes. He didn't do it in secret. I mean, the mushroom cloud was high and tall. And the only thing I had for him was what I believed to the core of my being. Nothing that just happened that you've described over this last six-month saga changes in one way, shape, or form God's attitude towards you. He is continually and relentlessly pursuing you. That's so powerful. That's so powerful and such a hard thing to believe. Yes, it's so hard to believe. It's so hard to believe. It's hard to believe that anyone else will love us a human being, it's even harder to believe that God would love us. And that really is the message of Easter. It's the message of Lent. It's the message of the season. It's the message of that book called Gentle and Lonely, where it's an exploration of the person of Jesus and how he draws close. It's almost like his life's purpose to find the person that is lowly either on the outside and has made so many mistakes and messed up their whole life, or the one who's lowly in a hidden way behind the mask and feels, what's wrong with me? Why, when I have everything looking good on the outside, do I feel so bad on the inside? It's that precise space that Jesus comes into and brings his gentleness and his love. So thanks so much for being with us. It was great to be with you.